Normally the break is, is longer, but because there's a lot to talk through, a lot of information, I feel like we need to, to jump in. Let me start off by just first of all saying thank you for those of you who've been hanging in there for these last couple messages. So this is a little bit of a different, a different journey because we're in the book of Romans and we've hit a passage that is one of the most, if not the most controversial passages in the New Testament related to who is, 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 is being talked about in this particular section of Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And so thanks for hanging in there. These have been different than a typical sermon that I would teach. These, I feel more like I'm in a classroom explaining this stuff. So it's a little different for me. It's a lot of information, more than I would normally give in a sermon. Today will be no different. I've said a couple times that many people have tackled this particular section in multiple, many sermons. Six minimum is what I found. And I've tried to do this in three. So if this has been an overload, thank God for technology. You can go back and listen again and put it together. Let me say this. We've talked about these before, but let me just, just say this again. There are different people who come to different conclusions about who Paul is talking about in Romans 7, 14 through 25. And whatever conclusion you come to, you still love Jesus, it's okay. All right, so I'm going to lay out today, I'm going to conclude today with what I think is happening in Romans 7. And you don't have to agree with my position, it's fine. I'm not going to be offended. There are a lot of people who disagree that love the Lord and love each other. So I want to lay out today what I think is happening in Romans 7. So this is my sort of, I'd like to solve the puzzle, if you will. Let me do a brief recap just to keep us there because there's a lot of information. There's some other stuff I wanted to say before I started, but I got a lot of information to get through. So I'm going to jump right in to this recap. We are in Romans 7, verses, verses 14 through 25. I want to give you a brief recap of last week just so we're all on the same page. There were three things that I said were important for me to process who is Paul talking about in Romans 7, 14 through 25. So I gave you this. The first thing I said was the law, meaning the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and beyond that, but sort of the Ten Commandments, if you want to think of it that way. The law was the biggest threat to the church in Paul's day. And the reason why is because everyone, including even in this day and age, everyone wants to know, how do I get to heaven if you will. Most people, you don't really hear people unless they're just doing it for shock value or whatever. Most people assume, expect, or at least desire that when they die in this world, they'll go to the next world, which will be a place of no suffering, a place of fun, no challenges, no struggles, and all of it. Now, most people imagine that as a place that exists, some of us imagine seeing Jesus there, seeing God there, and, and being able to be with him for eternity. But most people assume when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. So the question for everyone really is, well, how do you know that? What, what makes you ready to go to heaven? Like, why do you get to go to heaven? I'm a good person. Well, how good is good enough? How good do you have to be to go to heaven? So for the Mosaic law, 
the Jewish people, the Jews were God's chosen people thousands of years ago. And they worshiped to a tune just like that. That was the main beat in the Jewish continuum. So we, so we just want to let you know this is what it felt like if you... The Jewish people were chosen by God to be the people that would, the Messiah would come from, that Jesus would come from. And they were given a set of instructions on how to live to glorify God until Jesus came. Once Jesus came, then the rules changed. But what's happening in Paul's day is the people who are still trying to live by the rules before Jesus came are saying that I can get to heaven, which is being declared righteous, which the Bible calls justified. I can be justified by God by doing it this way. But now that Jesus has come, Paul is saying you can't do it that way. And anyone who's choosing to try to still do it the old way is not going to make it. You're not going to go to heaven. Very much like many of us who are Christians think outside of Jesus Christ, you don't make it to heaven. So the law was the biggest threat to the church in Paul's day because it was answering the question, how was one justified before God? This was a big transition period in that day and age. Very different from our day and age. And there were people who genuinely believed in Jesus Christ that felt like, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I still get circumcised and I still fulfill the Mosaic law like we looked at in Acts 15 last week. So that was the first thing. We have to understand that that was a reality. For me, that's important to understand who Paul's talking about in Romans 7. Second thing I said was there were, there's a couple different ways Paul views sin. I think there's three clearly. The first is without ever hearing about the law, just disobedience is what he describes in Romans chapter 1, and that's considered Gentiles, non-Jewish people. All right? Then there's disobedience under the law, Jewish people who were told what God said do and don't do, and they disobeyed, and that would be considered sinful in the flesh. But then there's another one that's obedience to the law instead of Jesus was also sinful and in the flesh to Paul. So even if you weren't doing some of the things, and this is what he said in Romans 1, he listed all these things that the Gentiles were doing, and then in chapter 2, and he says, but you also, you, may, you do these things, which you may not do these things, but you do others. You may, do, you may sin differently. Paul said in Galatians, we are not like Gentile sinners. In other words, we sin differently than they do, but in other words, we're not better than they are. So for Paul, if you try to obey the law instead of Jesus, it was sinful. You're in the flesh. It's the same thing. You're going to the same place, which is not where Jesus is. In fact, in Romans 2.12, Paul says this, all who sin without the law, like the Gentiles, will perish without the law. He said all who sin under the law, which were the Jewish people, they will be judged by the law. And they will be judged guilty. So in Romans, he's making a case against all three of these, but the hardest one to really get validated is the obedience because it's actually trying to do good things. It's like, it's like trying to convince someone who doesn't understand that or, or doesn't mean, know what it means like to believe in Jesus. Well, I'm a good person. Like, why would I? I've never killed anyone. I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't, I don't do any of these things. Why would I go to hell or why would... God be angry at me. Like, it's try to, it's, I'm a good person. I do good things. 
The question always becomes, well, how good is good enough? What's the standard of measurement? So there were different kinds of sins that Paul is speaking about. But trying to obey the law instead of Jesus is just as sinful as disobedience to the law and not even knowing what it is. And the third thing I said was, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians, both people who were Jewish that converted and Gentiles who were non-Jewish that became Christians. He's talking to Christians who are susceptible to still getting circumcised and trying to keep the law, which would be a rejection of Jesus. Would be a rejection. And I believe he's speaking directly to a situation that he knows about. I used to think this was hypothetical. I used to think he was just not, he was kind of figuring out, I think this might be what people are going through. But then when you get to Romans 16, which we'll get to in about four or five years, he says this. <laughs> he says in Romans 16, verse 3, he says, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Then he says this in verse 5. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear brother Epeonidas, who was the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has also worked very hard for you. Well, how would Paul know there's a church that meets in their home? He's never been to Rome. He says in Romans chapter 1, I haven't met you yet, but I look forward to meeting you. Well, how does he know that there's a church meeting in Priscilla and Aquila's home that he wants the church to greet? Greet those Christians. Well, because he's heard what's happening in the church. So Paul's letter is writing to the issues that are in the church. And Christians are susceptible, even though they believe in Jesus, to still think, well, we have to follow the law, too. And that's the battle. Now, here's why this is important. The issue of the day helps us understand the context, the background that gives reason to why Paul is saying what he's saying to them. So if we know that he's, he's trying to make sure people know that the law is good, but it cannot justify you, only Jesus can. That's his overarching concern. The law is good, but it can't save you. It can't declare you righteous. Just like telling someone, hey, you're, hey you don't cheat on your taxes, you don't do this, you don't do that, Those, that's good, but it's not enough to get to heaven, though. It's not, it's not it. It's not enough. So the issue of the day helps me understand the context and the reason why Paul's saying what he's saying. The different way sin is viewed helps me know that even good works, like trying to live according to the Ten Commandments, cannot make you righteous. And you have to understand that. You have to understand that. He's not talking, he's not talking to people who reject Jesus and using the law in that sense to Jews to try to help them understand. He's talking to Christians who think, oh, I can still, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I also still do this. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. If you believe in Jesus, you don't do these things anymore. Jesus did this, so now you live this way. That's what he's going after. Now, the most popular question in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is who is the man? Who's the I? Who is Paul talking about when he says, oh, I, I hate what I do, what I, what I want to do, I don't do, and I hate it, and if it's not me, then it's the sin in me, and oh, who will deliver me from this wretched body? All that, all that language. The most popular answers are that Paul is describing his day-to-day -day Christian experience. 
I laid that out the first message, and then went last week explained why I just don't think that's possible in this passage. The other answer is that Paul is describing his life as an unbeliever. The first message I laid out why people think that way and why that doesn't seem to be likely. Both of those have sort of an autobiographical understanding of the passage, that Paul is speaking autobiographical about his life. I said, I don't think it's either of those. And I said, Martin Lloyd-Jones, very well-known theologian, at least in the circles that we're from, he had a middle ground perspective, which I said, I agree with him, but I, have, I come to it differently. I don't, agree with, I don't agree with him 100 that it's all happening this way. So I want to give you his actual words, a quote on what he thinks Romans 7, 14 through 25 is mean. Here's what he says, his actual words. Whatever is being taught here, therefore, we can say that this is not a statement about a man who is unregenerate, means a non-Christian, unbeliever. Neither is it a statement about a man who is fully developed as a Christian as anyone could possibly be in this life and in this world. The unregenerate, the non-Christian, do not know and cannot say that the law is spiritual. And the apostle who wrote this epistle could not possibly be in the same condition as the Corinthians. But I, who is this? He is someone who is carnal. Look through your Bibles as to the meaning of the word carnal, to try to find something over and above what I have put before you and face this question. Is this a description of the Apostle Paul when he wrote this epistle? It is a description of a Christian man. Is it a description of a Christian man who has matured as much as it is possible for a Christian man to mature and to develop while he is alive in this world? For the moment, go no further than that. Here's what he's trying to say. Do you really think that as mature as Paul is in the faith, that he's writing, that he has the, lacks the ability to obey God, and that he's nothing good is in him? This is his point. Do you really think someone as mature as Paul is actually writing this from that perspective? He said, this is a preliminary and a key statement. We must not push past it. I am carnal. It's the only thing that is true about this, about this I. There is, not, there, is, there is something further which we shall go on to consider soul under sin. We should have surely realized already that there is no glib or easy answer to the problem posed by this section. We must proceed cautiously and reverently, giving every word and statement its full value and above all, free from the, from the desire to assert our particular point of view. May we all sink that unction and anointing from the Holy One, for the matter which we are dealing with is beyond the realm of grammar and intellectual dexterity. In other words, this is a hard passage to understand what he means. Take it seriously. And it's not a matter of intelligence because brilliant people who love God on both sides come to different conclusions on all sides. He thinks it's, it's a description that it's Paul is sort of personifying someone carnal, describing the law's inability to justify anyone. He's talking in sort of a, um, a style called dramatic present or historic present, where you speak in the present tense about something in the past. So for Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's still a little bit autobiographical, but Paul's sort of personifying someone who's carnal, 
who understands the law is good but can't, but can't obey it. Here's where I defer from him. I do not think Romans 7, 14 through 25 is autobiographical. I think it's hypothetical. And I'll explain what I mean. Here are three things we're going to do. Three questions we're going to answer. Here's the first. What is Paul trying to accomplish in Romans 7? What is he trying to accomplish? Now we're going to read. So there are people like, man, what verses is he talking about? If you haven't been here. All right, we're going to read Romans 7, 1 through 25 to get at big picture. What is he trying to accomplish? Beginning in verse 1. Open your Bible to Romans 7 if you haven't, there, haven't done that already. Beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from the CSB translation. I'm going to read 1 through 25. He says this. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known whether it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we, do, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but, sin, but, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law 
of sin. So here's what he's trying to accomplish in Romans 7. He wants the church to know that the law is good, but it cannot make you righteous. Only Jesus can. That's his overarching concern. The law is good, but it cannot make you righteous. Only Jesus can. The context here is the law. Not the spirit. When he talks about the spirit, he's talking about Jesus Christ. But he's talking about the law, and the point that he's trying to get across is the law is good, or he calls it, it's spiritual, but it cannot justify you. Only Jesus can. It has an inability by obeying the law for anyone to go to heaven. And one of the main reasons why, which he doesn't necessarily say in this passage, because the only way to go to heaven by keeping the law is to do it perfectly, which means you never sin. Now, you could say, well, I haven't done this, this, and this, though. Like someone who says, well, I mean, I'm a good person. Like, I don't, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't steal. I'm faithful to my wife. I, I, I'm honest. I'm a good person. Okay, so you're naming, this is why I deserve to go to heaven, because I don't do this, this, and this. Right? But here's what James 2.10 says. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So in other words, you've done nine of the Ten Commandments your whole life, most of your life. If that's, po- that's not even possible, but let's just say it was. And you, you fail in one of them. You fail in all of them. Because it's an all or nothing thing for God. The only way the law can justify you is if you never sin, if you obey it perfectly, and no one has been able to do it except Jesus Christ. So his overarching concern in Romans 7, what he's trying to accomplish is to make sure people know the law is good, but it cannot declare you righteous. It cannot justify you. Only Jesus can. Now, this is what tripped the Jews up. This is what tripped them up. Because, and why would it not? I mean, God created the law, but he also knew that they were going to sin, so he created a system of sacrifices. He created a way for their sins to be forgiven in the Torah. In the first five books of the Bible, that's the, he created in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus, you, you see this laid out. Here's a system of the way that God will forgive your sin individually and the whole nation on the Day of Atonement. So there was a system in place to say your sins are forgiven, obey the law. So it makes sense that they would think, hey, it's possible we can do this, we can do this. But their history proves they fail, they fail, they fail. God punishes them, then he redeems them. They fail, he punishes, he redeems them. They fail, he punishes, and then Jesus comes. And Jesus obeys the law perfectly. Now, many Jews reject him, don't believe he's the Messiah. Okay. You'll have to work that out when you see him. But the problem that Paul's trying to say is sin, not the law. Once sin happens, that's it, it's over. And many of us sin before we know how to do anything else. We know how to talk. If you have children or ever babysat, I mean, my kids could get angry. 
could be selfish before they knew what it was. They could lie just out of being afraid before they knew what it was. It's a rare occasion that you teach a two-year-old to lie. Hey, listen. When I ask you, did you do it? Say it wasn't me. Like, lie like no one does that. But as soon as you say, what happened? I didn't do it. It was right away. Well, well, hey, guess what? You can't keep the law, son. <laughs> out of luck. You're out of the game. This is what he's trying to do. Remember, he's talking to Christians who are susceptible to thinking, okay, I believe in Jesus, but let's still try to keep the law. It's like, no, you can't do it. When you believe in Jesus, you say, thank you, goodbye to the law. I couldn't keep it anyway. That's his overarching concern in this passage. The law is good, but it cannot justify you. It cannot declare you righteous. Only Jesus can. So how does he accomplish this in Romans 7? So that's what he's trying to accomplish. How does he accomplish it? This gets at the core of what I believe Paul is doing in this passage, which will reveal what he's doing in verses 14 through 25. How does he accomplish this in Romans 7? He uses three illustrations to make his point. Three illustrations getting at different aspects to make his point that the law is good, but it cannot justify you. You're not going to heaven by trying to keep the law. You're only going to heaven because Jesus kept the law and you believe in him. That's it. He uses three illustrations. The first is an analogy, is an illustration of marriage. Look at verses 1 through 3. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. So he's giving an illustration to them to help them understand, which he lays out in verses 4 through 6, that the, the, the marriage illustration is that, listen, you are bound, a wife is bound to her husband while he's alive. If he dies, she's no longer bound to him. She's free to marry someone else. In their day and age, in that day, if you married someone else while your husband, your spouse, your husband was alive, you would be committing adultery. You'd be committing adultery. It would be sinful to do that. In fact, one of the heroes of the, of the New Testament, John the Baptist, was in prison because he told Herod the king, you can't marry your brother's wife while he's still alive. And he did, so he was put in prison. So he's using an illustration to try to help them see, okay, as, as a woman whose husband died is no longer bound, you also have died to the law. So he's going after their identity in verses 1 through 3. In this illustration, he's speaking to their identity. You are like the married woman, no longer having be bound by the law of the husband because you've died to the law. When you believed in Jesus, you were like, all right, I'm not trying to follow that anymore. That's no longer the acceptable way to get to heaven, to be justified. He's trying to convince these believers that they have a clean break from the law. And he's using the language that he used in Romans 6 about dying. This is his way of trying to say, by analogy from Romans 6, sin will not have mastery over you because you are not under law but under grace. This is the first illustration that he lays out. 
In verses 4 through 6, he's speaking to that, to that identity. And I personally believe, this is my personal opinion, that these verses are the only autobiographical parts in this passage. Verses 4 through 6 is what he says, coming off the illustration from 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So verse 4 through 6 is trying to clarify the illustration by reminding them that they're no longer obligated to keep the law. He's going after their identity. This is who you are now. First illustration. The second illustration, he's showing why the law is good. The law is not the problem. Sin is. And he says this in in Romans 7, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known if it I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have even known what it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. And sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. That's what he's after. Therefore, did what become death to me? Did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, in order to be recognized as sin... In order to be recognized as sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might also become sinful beyond measure. He's using an illustration, using himself as an illustration, and to say, the law isn't the problem. Sin is. The law is not the problem. I don't think this is autobiographical. Because he uses some language here, like, once I was alive apart from the law, When? When were you alive apart from the law? Paul was born in the law. Paul wasn't alive apart from the law. Now, Paul is saying, well, when I was a non-Christian and didn't know anything about the law, then I became to the law. But Paul understands as a Christian, looking back at the law, what the law actually does. He's making a logical point because he's basically talked about the law in negative terms. He's basically said the law cannot do this. The law cannot do that. The law cannot justify you. The law only reveals sin. The law brought death to me. Logically, you would be like, well, Dad, what was the point of the law? Who wouldn't say that? Who wouldn't say that? If someone brought you to a restaurant, right, say, hey, let's go out to eat. And you sit down and they're like, listen, I've eaten here a couple times. Let me tell you a couple things. Don't get these dishes. And there's 12 dishes on the menu, right? And they point at 10 of them and say, I wouldn't order those. (laughs) What would you say? What you bring me here for? I didn't come here for no cabbage soup. I may need it, but that's not what I want right now. I don't want no cabbage soup. What would you bring me here for? 
Well, this is what he's getting at. If all I'm hearing about the law is that it is negative, the natural response is then the law is evil, which means God is evil because God is the one who instituted the law. So he has to protect the law as something that's good. The law is good. Sin is the problem. The law revealed sin. Here's an illustration to help this point. When I was, when my oldest son was two, he one time was walking towards the socket. It was the first time he ever did this. That's the only time he ever did this. He had like a, I think he was playing with like a fork or something, a metal fork. And he was walking towards the faucet, towards the socket like he was going to do that. And I was like, mijo, no, 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 no. I said, that's bad. And he was like, bad? I said, no, that's bad. That'll kill you, son. You'll go be with the Lord. And he was, and so he looked at it, then he looked at me, and I said, no, son. No, 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 no. Do not touch this. All right? 30 minutes later, he's walking back over there, but he's looking at me this time, seeing what I'm doing. What happened? You know, he never, before that, it never even occurred to him to touch that. But now that he knows he can't touch it, he can't help himself. Now he's curious. What's going to happen? You know, you ever watch those movies when it has a big button? He's like, man, what happens if I touch this button? Remember in Avengers when the dude who was, uh, the dude was, was getting ready to die and he was holding on to the gun in Avengers Part 1? And then he says, I wonder what this button does. And then right before he dies, he presses it and knocks Loki back and he says, oh, that's what it does. Boom. <laughs> this is what he's saying sin did. Now that you're telling me don't do this, I want to do it. So even though the law is good, I was telling my son, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that, son. You're going to die if you do that. That's good. There's a law. Don't put that in the socket. But now that you know the law is good, now I want to do it, though. This is what he's saying in this passage. He's giving an illustration to say, look, the law is good. Sin is the problem. In other words, so don't blame God for the law. The law is a good thing. This is what he's getting at in the, third, in the second illustration. In the third, and he, so, he's, the th- so the first illustration, he's getting at their identity. You've died to this. The second illustration, making sure they understand that sin is the problem. And this third illustration, in verses 14 through 25, he's showing clearly that the law cannot justify. That's his point. That's his overarching theme is the law is good, but it cannot justify you because of sin. Only Jesus can. So here's his last illustration. And it actually begins in verse 13. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandments, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For we know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do not do what I want, I no longer am the one who does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I, can't, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. This is an illustration that he's using to make an emphatic point that the law cannot justify you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. I do not believe this is autobiographical, but I haven't proven my point yet. I haven't proven that yet. Before we zoom in to verses 24 through 14 through 25, so I can try to make that point, I want to ask another question. Why does Romans 8.1 highlight no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? So after he lays out this dilemma, what a, verse 24, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, it was weakened by the flesh. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. This is an incredible passage highlighting that Jesus' sacrifice is so significant, so significant, that all the people who were trying to keep the law before and all of us thousands of years later can be forgiven. This is a significant, and I really wish I'm not preaching this, but I can't wait. But he says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the rule of the word, therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, it almost always means so then, or as a result, or in light of what I just said. Okay, that's kind of the rule. And it's always, it's often almost always speaking to the context of the verses that came right before it, providing either a solution, an adjustment, or further explanation. So when you hear, therefore, or, or, or in light of what I just said, and then he says something else. Now, exegetically speaking, it's bringing closure to the previous train of thought and transitioning to a new thought that is now relevant because of what was just stated. That's what it's doing. Whenever you see, therefore, that's typically what it's doing. All right, there are three therefores that take precedence to understand Romans 7. They're in verses 4, verse 13, and then Romans 8, 1. Look at verse 4. So remember, the first illustration is about marriage. It's going after their identity. You've died to this. You're no longer this. Your identity has changed. Here's a marriage illustration to prove it. And he says this in verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law. So having said that, in light of what I just said about that marriage illustration, he says, you also were put to death. Almost like saying, you're like the woman in the narrative. In the illustration I told, you're like that woman, okay? You also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So he's, he's bringing closure to the illustration of marriage to show Christians this is your identity. You've died to the law in the same way this married woman's husband died and she no longer has to keep the law of what it means to be his wife. He's saying you died to the law because you put faith in Jesus. You don't live that way anymore. In other words, your identity is different. Jesus has made you righteous, not the law. 
So that therefore is bringing conclusion to the thoughts, he said, in verse, to the illustration of one through three. The second, therefore, is in verse 13. This is after verses 7 through 12 of him highlighting that sin is the law. That when the law came, sin sprang to life and I died. And once I was alive apart from the law, but then sin came. So his point in 7 through 12 is that the law is good. The laws are the problem sin is. And then he sums that up. He comes to 13 and he says this, therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that through, my, through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. So he's addressing the issue that sin is the problem, not the law. Though the law is good, sin prevents him, you, anyone from keeping it perfectly. Because the law only reveals what sin is. It doesn't make you sin, but it tells you not to do it. And the human nature wants to do it because you're told you're aware of it now. It's almost like a tractor beam. It's the reason why when you have a lot of bugs and stuff, you get those bright lights. Because you put them in front, hoping that they'll just be like, wow, look at the light. And it's gone. The law is that light. It draws you in, but it, it kills you. In other words, it, you can't sin will not allow you to keep the law perfectly. Paul doesn't want his, the believers to have a negative view of the law because it would lead to a negative view of God. But notice he does something different in this therefore than verse 4. In verse 4, he brings conclusion to the thought of 1 through 3 to the illustration, and then he moves on to a new one. In this one, he does something different. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, Sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me. He asks another question. He doesn't bring conclusion to what he said in 7 through 12. He asks a hypothetical question. Did what is good become death to me? And then he begins to answer it. So he, continue, he continues on in his thought. And he's making the point, sin isn't the problem. The law isn't the problem, sin is. And because of sin, you cannot be justified, even if you think the law is good. Then we get to Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This brings closure to the reality that the law cannot justify. It brings closure. Cannot justify. Only Jesus can. I'm going to keep saying that a hundred times because that is the context and his greatest concern in the passage. Whatever law it is, whether it's the Mosaic law, or you being a good person, or some other religion, according to what we believe who God is and what Jesus said, he's the only one that can declare you righteous before God. Every other law that anyone keeps in any part of the world will stand before God outside of Jesus and be like, you, you couldn't do it perfectly. Even if you obey your own conscience, you still won't do it perfectly. It is impossible. It is impossible. What is he saying here? He's saying, therefore, and then he goes into this third illustration. But he's not describing Christian experience. It's not autobiographical. It's hypothetical. Paul's using himself to make an emphatic point. To be more specific, 
he's using this illustration, even slightly exaggerated for emphasis to make the point that the law can't justify anyone, even if you believe that the law is good. Look at this. The hypothetical Q&A, verse 7. This is exhibit A. Verse 7 is the real culprit because this is where you, the hypothetical component comes in. When he says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin is. This, is. this is very standard for Paul to do this. In most of his letters, we see stuff like this. He'll ask a question, answer it, and then give reasons why he answered it that way. We see that in a few of his letters. This isn't, this isn't new. But this is what he's doing. He's asking a question. It may be hypothetical, or he has knowledge that people are thinking this way based on what he knows of the church. So he's asking the question that people are saying, and then he's giving his reason for why it can't happen that way. So you can't just say, absolutely not. I need more than that. You can't just say, no. You got to give me more than that. So he starts to lay out his reasons why. But then when he gets to verse 13, like I said, he asks, he doesn't bring conclusion to 1, 7 through 12. He asks more questions. He asks another question. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So sin was producing. So what he's trying to say is, listen, after I've laid this out in 7 through 12, that sin is the problem, then he says, so did what is good become death to me? In other words, is what God did good something wrong? Is that the problem? Absolutely not. Let me explain my reasons why. And he walks through this third illustration. Third illustration. Second thing we need to look at, Exhibit B. Look at the way sin is discussed in this passage. You will not find sin discussed like this in many of the other, in, in a lot of the New Testament. Now, there's a lot of verses, and because of time, I'm not going to name all of them, just in this passage. But he speaks about sin in the third person. Sin is not a person. Sin is not a person. He speaks about it almost as in the third person. Like he separates himself in the illustration from sin as if they're, they're separated in like, you, sin could do this, but you can't. Well, that's antithetical to the rest of the way sin is, is talked about in the Bible. Yes, yeah, sin is crouching at the door, but once it's committed, it's not, well, sin did it, not me. Listen to what he says. Listen to how he talks about sin. Sin is not a person. Listen, verse 17. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. No, that means you're doing it. You're doing it. I mean, imagine someone offends you, they sin against you, and they say, hey, listen, that wasn't me, that was a sin. Okay, could you elaborate a little bit more? Well, no, I didn't do it, it was the sin that did it. Yeah, but you did it, the sin and you did it, though. So it was your sin. Yeah, but it wasn't me, it was sin, though. But you did it, though. Sin is not a person. You can't walk up and be like, sin, what's your day like, man? What's good? You don't do that. When you think of sin, you think of it in terms of, if it, even if you talk about it outside of you, like as an entity, like sin causes. It's because of sin, but it's never disconnected from your ability to do it. So when you sin, you don't say, hey, man, uh, I didn't do it. It was a sin in me. You don't talk like that. Someone will be offended. You would never resolve any conflicts with anyone if you said, man, I ain't do it. So what happened? I mean, I ain't do it. It was the sin got angry and then, and then said what it said. And I just, I just actually just watched it. I was sitting there like, wow, sin is going off right now. <laughs> it's like, 
I was just sitting there watching. I was actually having a cup of coffee, and sin was arguing with my wife. I didn't, I didn't say nothing. I didn't do it. It was the sin living in me that did it. I didn't do it. So you don't think that was you? No, it was a sin. Talk to the sin. I'm talking to him. Right? It just doesn't work. Listen to the way sin is discussed. It just doesn't work. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Nah. No, Paul. No. Paul knows more than anyone that sin is always our doing. Yes, sin, you can talk about sin as an entity, but once you do it, it's your sin. None of us will ever say, hey, it wasn't, no, it, was, it wasn't me, it was a sin. No, those two are connected. They're connected. If I do this, it's my sin. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it said, if he, if he, whatever you're a slave to, whatever you do, you're a slave of. The only way Paul could talk about this this way is because he's not speaking autobiographically. There's no way Paul thinks that he's not capable of sin, but sin in him and it's separate. No, he understands the dynamic. He's not speaking autobiographically. That's why the language is a little bit exaggerated to make a point. He's not speaking, this is what I did, I did this. No, he's using himself as an, as an illustration to make an emphatic point. Paul, and nowhere else would he speak about sin being separate from the one doing it. As a matter of fact, in, in Timothy, he says, uh, uh, says, I'm the chief of sinners. Because he persecuted the church. But in this analogy, in this illustration, he talks about these things in very odd terms. I do not do what I want to do, but I do not do the evil that I want to do, but I can't do it. I can't stop myself from doing it. I do it because he's using an illustration. It's hypothetical. I don't think it's dramatic present like Martin Lloyd-Jones where he's speaking of himself in the present tense of the past. I think it's hypothetical. I think it's hypothetical. Let me explain what I mean. If you don't know sports, I apologize for this. I love sports, and I watch a lot of uh, ESPN. There's a show called First Take. It's one of my favorite sports shows. It has a guy named Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman. And these guys argue all day about sports, all right? Right now, today, today is a big day because it's free agency in the NBA, which means that certain players who are superstars can now be pursued by other teams for lots of money to stack their team up, all right? And so the talk has been almost every day since the NBA season ended with Toronto Raptors won, who's going to go where? Who's going to go where? One of the... Biggest question marks is a guy named Kevin Durant, who's actually from here. Kevin Durant's from Landover. He was playing for the Warriors. I want to make sure you know that. Understand. Understand. Recognize. Recognize. So <laughs> Kevin Durant, one of the greatest players in the game, in the history of the game, seven-footer, jump shot like crazy, hurt his Achilles in the second round of the NBA playoffs. Came back in game six. Was it five or six? Five. Hurt his health again, and then now they think he's out for at least a year. But he's a superstar. Everyone's talking about, what's Kevin Durant going to do? All right? When you watch first take, you'll see conversation happen like this. This is how they'll talk about this. They'll go like this. So, Stephen A., so what do you think Kevin Durant's going to do? 
listen. <laughs> Kevin Durant can go anywhere he wants to go. All right? I mean, if I'm Kevin Durant and I'm in the hospital, I'm looking at the whole landscape. And I'm seeing what people are saying. This player is going here. AD is now going to the Lakers over there. I can go over there to the Clippers and challenge the Lakers. Or I can go to the Knicks. And I can get this. I can make the max amount of money for anything that I want to do because everybody knows I'm one of the greatest players in the game. Now, you see what he did? He started talking like he's Kevin Durant. But he's not but he talks that way to make a point, an emphatic point. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul is not being autobiographical. He's he's talking about, he's making an emphatic point, talking about the law and stuff in somewhat exaggerated ways. Not that that what he's saying isn't true, but he's, he's building it up to make the point. He wants to make sure you know the law cannot justify you. Even if you agree that the law is spiritual, the law is good. Now, he's talking to Christians who know that God is holy and God is good. Even if you agree that the law is spiritual. So look at it. Listen to what he says here. Look at verse, look at this. All right, we talked about the hypothetical questions in verse, in verse 7 and 13, which I think he's just answering. He's continuing his answer from 13 on to the end of this chapter. He's summarizing the illustration about the law and sin being the problem. But then he gets to, look at verse, so let's, let's, let's start up with verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. See that now, if, that's important. Now, I would agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones that verb tenses do not help you solve this. But that now There are other translations for that. One of them is on the other hand. Another one is at the same time. And another one is along with that. I think he's giving a hypothetical. He's using himself as, it's it's almost like saying, for example, now, if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good. He's using it, it's it's an illustration. He's using it as an example. Susan said, now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. He's making a point. Listen, if I fight against, if I fight against what the law says not to do, then I already agree that it's good because I wouldn't want to obey it if I didn't think it was good. That's his point. He's making a, a dramatic point hypothetically, not autobiographically. He's just trying to say, now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, right? I agree, it's good. So he's making sure you know, okay, you agree this law is good because you try to obey it. My son agreed that what I said was good because he stopped doing it. If he would have kept doing it, I'd have been like, son, a hard head makes for a soft butt, son. (laughs) He says, now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. And he keeps going, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. These are illustrations. This is hypothetical. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, and I'll replace that with, at the same time, 
If I do not do what I want, then I am no longer the one who does it, but it is sin that lives in me. He's using an illustration to make a dramatic point. And he's speaking of himself. It's hypothetical. He's almost talking about himself in the third person, even though he's saying I, which is first person. He's not being autobiographical. He's being hypothetical to make the point that the law is good, but it cannot save. Only Jesus can. Even if you see the law is spiritual. Even if you agree that the law is good, it cannot save. So he's building this up, building this up. And then, it's, and to me, to me, in typical Stephen A. fashion, so he builds this up. But if I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law, or my mind taking me prisoner to the law, then the parts of the sin of my body. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this wretched body? I think he's being dramatic to make the point that only Jesus can declare you righteous. I do not believe that this is autobiographical. Look at verse 18. He says this, For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. He didn't say nothing good lives in me. He says that is in my flesh. Making a distinction there. That distinction here shows that he's a believer looking at the law. He's speaking hypothetically, but he's a believer. He knows that nothing good lives in his flesh, but he knows it's in the spirit. And that's where he's headed. Remember, there, this thing you got to remember, the chapter headings in the Bible are not inspired. Neither are the verses, none of that. Paul was writing and writing and writing. At some point when Bible started to get translated, they gave chapter headings and stuff to try to help regular folk like us who wouldn't understand the Bible just to have some sense of what it's going to talk about. But you get a Bible, get a Bible or use your Bible app, take out the words and the chapter headings and the, the numbers and read that thing straight through. He's just writing it and he's using these illustrations to make the point. It's not about who the man is. It's about the law cannot justify. Only Jesus can. This I is, it's, it's, even though what he's saying could be true about the law, it's, it's hypothetical and even somewhat exaggerated to make an emphatic point. So he gets to, therefore, and here's the point he's trying to make. The best the law can do is bring you to condemnation. That's the best. So if you obey the law and you do what the best you can, you're going to get condemnation. That's it. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. Justification means not guilty. Condemnation means guilty. So this emphatic point that he's building up for is to make this grand entrance. This is why he says, therefore, because that comes out of nowhere. Condemnation, he only uses it five times in the whole book. He has, we haven't seen the word condemnation since chapter 5. We haven't seen it since chapter 5. He makes this emphatic point about condemnation to say this, look, all this stuff, what a wretched man I am. Who would deliver me from this body of death? Then he says, in light of what I just said, Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You know what? You could almost say that Paul is essentially describing what condemnation feels like, not conviction. That's why he said there's no condemnation. In other words, this is what he says, Jesus fulfilled the law. He did it. He did what we couldn't do because of sin. 
I don't think he's being autobiographical at all. I think it's hypothetical to make an emphatic point that the law cannot justify only Jesus. Can in fact, if I were speaking exegetically in terms of the flow of the book, I think in the flow of the book, I think in chapter 6, chapter 6 is a description of what it means to obey God in Christ instead of the law. Chapter 7 is a description of what it means to obey the law instead of Christ. He's contrasting the obedience in Christ that has victory in Romans 6 against the obedience to the law that has condemnation in Romans 7. And so you get to there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who was the man in Romans 7? It's Paul writing as a believer to believers with the knowledge that they could fall victim to trying to keep the law and still believe in Jesus. So he emphatically tells them through three illustrations that the law cannot justify you. Only Jesus can. Because it will bring condemnation. The first illustration speaks to their identity. You've died to the law. The second illustration is talking about sin and sin's inability to keep the law perfectly in us. And the third illustration is a hypothetical one that leads to the point that it can only condemn you. It can only lead to condemnation. That's what he's doing. The question in this passage should not be who's the man in Romans 7. It should be what law are you and I trying to keep apart from Jesus Christ? That's the real question. What law are we trying to keep? So maybe you are the, the law is I'm a good person. I don't really, I don't really believe in Christianity. Like I don't really need religion. I'm just going to do me and, and I'm just a good person and all of that. And I'm just going to do what I got to do. And I ain't, I ain't really religious. I'm, I got, I'm spiritual. So are demons for real. <laughs> you know, let's keep it a kilo. So are demons. But maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you, I don't, I don't need to believe in this stuff. I don't. You know, I, don't, I don't believe in that. And that's, so that's the law you keep. And when you die, you expect to go to heaven. You expect to be in a better place, like they'll say at the funeral. Maybe that's the law you keep. Or maybe you keep a law where you believe in Jesus, but you really just don't believe the promises, particularly of your identity. So maybe you just live like with morbid introspection and somewhat defeated. Maybe you identify with Romans 7 so much that that's just how you live. Listen, if you identify with Romans 7 and that's your day-to-day experience, you will not have the victory in Romans 6. And you can only appreciate from a distance Romans 8. Maybe that's your law. Maybe you just think, man, God is, and so you constantly just feel like God is at odds with you, that he's tired of you. That's a different law. When Paul talked about, so I find this new law. The question is what's the law that's in you? What's the law that's in me? If only Jesus can justify us, declare us righteous, then we have to fight against the law that we see in our obedience. Maybe my law is presumption. Maybe I profess to believe in Jesus, but I don't really fight my sin that much. Maybe I think grace is so amazing that I'm just not even really fighting. Like, if I feel like having sex outside, I'm just going to do it. If I just feel like losing my temper, I'm going to do it. If I feel like doing this, I'm just going to do it. And, you know, it's God's job to forgive, so to speak. 
Grace is so amazing that you can just do whatever. That's a law. That's a law that you're living by, and it's a law that will not justify you. It will not. The only law that justifies is the law of the Spirit, which he tackles emphatically in Romans chapter 8. This week in your D groups, I'm going to send questions to your leaders to talk about this, this issue. Not so much your interpretation. I, don't, I have no problem if you don't agree with my perspective. That doesn't bother me at all. What I want us to do, though, is talk about where are we at? What law are we living by for real? Let's look at that. Let's remind ourselves. Let's encourage ourselves to get back to the law of the Spirit. Read Romans 8, 1 through 17 in your groups this week. This is what I think it is. I think it's not autobiographical. It's hypothetical. And this concludes Who's the Man of Romans 7. I see why some of these guys preach these in like 10, 12, 15 sermons. Because I, I was just running through. I realized, like, man, I'm not trying to make a part four. There's more that could, because you want to lay something like this out. But I just wanted to get through it. Uh, just time for a few questions. Questions. Yeah, Karen. So um, I think you really can almost erase my question because you're right. I think it's not, a, I agree that it's not really about whether they're a believer or unbeliever, even though I tend to go towards the believer perspective a little bit, even though I'm far from a theologian. Um, however, you, you did break out the not autobiographical and hypothetical. I'm wondering why it can't be both. Because even, even Paul has not, is not Jesus. So he has moments of sin. So why can't it be both in that, yes, this is our struggle against sin um, because sin no longer has reign over us. And um, so just like the moments of sin mm -hmm. and not that Paul has been struggling so bad it is almost like he's an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering why it can't be both um, because to me that explains like the Christian life, like sin has no reign over us. However, we still have to fight sin mm -hmm. in moments are like this. Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. I think the main reason why I would say it can't be both is because of the definitive language that he uses. No Christian can say, I do not practice what I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Because in 1 John 3 and 9 says, no one born of God will practice sinning. So, if you, so I, think we can, I think we can identify with parts of it. I'm not saying you throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I think there are aspects we can identify like, man, it's, it's a hard life. Now, I personally don't think that Paul would want us to identify with Romans 7. I think he'd want us to identify with Romans 6, to be honest with you. But I think you can, but the language in this, there's certain phrases you can't identify with. Like, you can't identify with, it wasn't you, it was the sin. You know, you can't do that. You can't identify with, I practice evil, because then I would say, well, man, you're not a believer then. So I think there's some language in it that would make it, to me, disqualifies it from being, hey, this is fully a believer. But I do think, yeah, there's things I can relate to. I still relate to some of it. I still can read some of these verses and relate to some of the feeling of it. But to say that this is my experience as a believer is kind of difficult. And again, but again, some people think it is. All right, so this is just my perspective. There are people sharper than me to think he's a believer. I just don't see it. Don't see it. Yep. 
Crystal? So focusing on verses 18 through 22, uh-huh. um, kinda, uh, I know you're not trying to convince us, but it does appear to me that there is some level of fight going on within this person, which if you're you know, not saved, if you're un- not a believer, there is no real fight. You know, you can't say you delight in the Lord, the law of the Lord, if you don't believe the law of the Lord. Like, th- this, there is a part of me that thinks that this is the life, this is a saved person, maybe in a particular sin struggle, sin habit. I, 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 I don't see how this is a carnal person because there is no fight. Like, I don't see people fighting, you know, do you, you know, live your truth? That's not fighting anything. That's doing what you want to do. So how is this? I'm still not grasping how this is a carnal person, an unsaved person. Well, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones' perspective. I don't necessarily think it's carnal, personally. But I think to to go with what you said, I I would say this. I think we have to be careful when we say what a person can and can't do. Like, prime example, I wouldn't have thought by reading Corinthians that they were believers. The whole... From if, if he didn't put verses in chapter one, verses four through nine, basically like saying, I know you're a believer and the spirit is in you because of these things. If he hadn't have done that, I would not read the rest of Corinthians and say this person's a believer. These, this church was, there's no way. But he refers to them that way because he, he feels like they are based on some things. So then I think you have believers in multiple levels of maturity, right? So there can be a person who believes that the law is spiritual and good or believes the license of the law of the Lord, but is really struggling to fight against maybe so someone that brought up addiction and stuff like that. That could be a person who's genuinely saved. Like we, we can't caricature and make it either the person who would say it's spiritual is either like, man, I'm just doing me. There are people who believe that the law is good but feel like, man, I'm just not, I'm not getting at it. It's too hard for me. That's why some people... So I don't know. I don't think the person is carnal. I don't think that was the point of what Paul's trying to do either. I think he's just trying to, again, make an illustration. Like, remember, he's talking to believers who... There's are Christians. Christians who could submit to the law. What I think he's doing is he's talking to them because they would believe that the law is spiritual. These people could... They could agree with that the law is spiritual and still struggle, and they're susceptible to believing the law is spiritual and trying to attain righteousness through it. So by him using this illustration, that's why it's important who he's talking to. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians who, some, who could be tempted to think, well, I can believe in Jesus, but I still got to get circumcised and, do all, and try to keep the law. So when he's describing this, even as a Christian, you can see that the law is spiritual, but it's not going to save you. It's not going to justify you. So even if you think the law is spiritual and good, which it is, it's not going to save you. That's what I think he's getting at. So I don't think it's carnal either. That, but again, I respect uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I respect him mightily. That dude is a heavyweight. So to disagree with him is something else. Uh, yes, ma'am, and, I, and we'll go. I saw a hand back there. Yeah. Forgive my ignorance. Is this where um, being legalistic comes in or not even? Not in this passage. Oh, okay. So, no. Uh, yes, yeah, back there. In the back, there's a work cut out. <laughs> hey, Kirk, yep. could you please clarify, um, I guess elaborate on the difference between practicing sin and stumbling? Because 
every genuine Christian understands that it's Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness that's covering us so that when we're judged and we point to him, that will be what saves us. But we're still in charge of how we live out our lives. So what we do still matters. So how do, how do, I, how do I hold those two things in tension? Good, that's a good question. So I would say the practice of sin is to sin without any remorse. Like I know people who believe there's no remorse and they continue to do it. There's not, there's, there, like what makes us different is not just our actions. It's the spirit that grieves us. Like there's a, there's a war, there's a battle. There are some people that say they're Christians that have no battle. They don't battle. There's not a battle. And some of us know some of these people. They, there's not a battle. You can talk to them like, man, you like, you're not even tripping. Like you don't even, you know, there's not a battle. I, I think the, the practicing sin is one that's done with effort. And actually you are, you're okay with the sin. When you stumble, like you, you agree that the law is good, so you're trying to keep it, right? We agree that following Jesus is the right way. So when you fall, you're like, man, you go back and you ask for forgiveness. You feel there's a level of, of conviction that, that you feel and you keep fighting. That's the dip. Practicing sin would be, I'm just sinning and I'm just, it's whatever. And I don't mean even in that, the language, like it's whatever. I mean, I think you just don't seem like you're fighting. There are people I've had to say, look, I'll just be honest with you. I don't, I don't, I don't, see, any, I don't see any fighting you. Like, you've been, you know, you've been doing this. Because there are some, I think all of us have areas where, while this is a, a besetting sin, this is a sin that might just be, we're going to stumble for life. But there are some things that's like, wow. So I'm like, you just really seem like you're okay. Like, you're not coming because you, or people, or another way I think, <clears throat> another way that you can practice sin versus conviction versus condemnation is I think when you're caught versus confessing. I think, like, if you, if you just don't ever... You know, when you get caught that's, and you feel guilty, okay, you got, you got caught. There's difference than, a man, I'm just confessing. And I, need to, I want to go to brothers and I, I, I want to be a part of the, somebody saying, hey, bro, I want you to know I fell in this area. I need, you know, there's a sense where there's no shame in that. We make that shameful for some reason. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in being like, man, I'm struggling with this. I mean, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. It says, admonish the idle, people who don't, who are not. And that's what I think practicing sin are. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. People who are just kind of stumbling. This is help the weak. Those who are physically and also somewhat spiritually weak. Even Jesus in Mark 4 told the parable of the soil, the, so, the sower, the seed, it was, uh, he said, 30, 60, 100 fold. So there's going to be different levels of maturity that people hit in this life and to the next life. And they're different rewards and different things like that. So I think falling, stumbling, Psalms, a righteous man stumbles seven ways and seven times picks himself back up. I think you, you stumble, you keep going, you confess, you keep fighting, you make plans. Like, I honestly think if we don't make, like, plans and really think about the way we sin and stuff, I think we're just susceptible to just keep doing it. And then we have to imagine, do we have to go after, like, man, do I, am I just tired of doing it? Just down, just tired of the way I feel? Like, I want to honor the Lord. There's, I think there's a difference. I don't think it's semantics. I think there's a difference where I'm just tired of feeling this way. Like, I know many people can, I know, I know people who struggle with drugs. Like, man, I'm just tired of hangovers. I'm tired of throwing up. In the t- That's different than, man, I want to honor the Lord. And so I want to do this because it honors the Lord. I think there's a difference. I think that, that's, that's what I would say. 